Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hello, my self-lovers. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure that you're giving yourself the gift of self-love. Now, if you don't know what the gift of self-love is, it's a workbook that will help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to finally love yourself. And it's now available in stores and online worldwide. Oh my goodness, I've been waiting to say that because I've been working on this book for years. I poured my heart and soul into it, compiling everything that I teach at my retreats and putting it into this heartfelt, relatable, and actionable workbook for you. The cool thing is this book is a combination of me sharing my life story and everything that's helped me on this self-love journey, including body acceptance. And it's a workbook that you can actually write in. So every single thing that I share, you can put into practice right away. There are quizzes, journal prompts, self-reflection exercises, self-love challenges, all of which will help you with body image, confidence, self-worth, and self-love. I'm holding it right here. It's right in front of me and it's absolutely gorgeous. Not to toot my own horn or anything, but we've nailed the design on this one. It makes such a wonderful gift both for yourself and for your loved ones. Perhaps you have a friend that could really use this message and that, you know, needs a little push, loving push in the right direction. And I think that this book is just a great gift. Hence, the gift of self-love. So if you haven't gotten it yet, you can get it today by going to maryscupoftea.com slash book. I'm certain that the tools I share in this book will change your life as much as they've changed mine. So again, that's maryscupoftea.com slash book and give yourself the gift of self-love. Hey, self-lovers, welcome to another episode of the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Today, I have a guest for you. Her name is Jenny J, and she is a storyteller and creator. We met on the Instagram. I think I found her in 2020, and I am just continuously blown away by the thoughtfulness of her content. And the stuff she shares is generally things that I would never think about. But once she points it out, It's like you can't unsee it. Jenny's lived experiences as a South Asian woman with experiences living with both visible disability and invisible disability, living unhoused and without financial security, and existing in her other identities have created this well-rounded online presence that I continuously learn so much from. She recognizes the difference it makes when stories are shared in a way that recognizes your community and validates their experiences, as opposed to when people just throw up online content and oftentimes it just, you know, when something just doesn't sit well with you, like you see it and you're like, "Mm, that missed the mark a little bit. Jenny has a beautiful way of pinpointing why and explaining with kindness how we can show up better in the digital space. Together, Jenny truly believes that we can make spaces online and in our media, in our conversations, in our businesses, spaces for change. So in this episode, Jenny talks to us about her personal story. She is a full-time photo and videographer, so she creates stories to tell online for other people. 
And a lot of that is motivated by clearly her personal journey. So she'll teach you how to think critically about what you see on social media. Also, this is a tough topic, but really needs to be talked about. We talk about digital cultural appropriation, what that looks like, and how to avoid it. And also at the end, we talk about how to set boundaries in your digital space. So whether you're a creator or consumer of online content, I think we're all looking to live a little bit more conscientiously online. And Jenny does such a beautiful and eloquent. She just has an eloquent way of setting boundaries. And I wanted us all to learn from her. You can find Jenny J on Instagram. She's at just ask Jenny. And you can also get her inclusive content calendar with the link in the show notes. So this is basically a breakdown of all the important dates across cultures and different religions and traditions. And that content calendar will tell you exactly what's happening on every single day. So that way you can make sure to acknowledge it. If you are an online creator or if you're just in the workplace and you want to be more aware of these things, I highly recommend checking out her inclusive content calendar. And that link is in the show notes, as are a lot of other fun things. So without further ado, please welcome to the show, Jenny J. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. And I'm so excited to be on. Thank you for having me. Acting like we were not just talking about what? <laughs> <laughs> like two seconds ago before you pressed record? Absolutely. Are we both sweating? Yes. We nailed that professional voice, though. Like, that was so suave. <laughs> I honestly think if there is anything that perfectly embodies this idea of like code switching and like just like entering into a new space, it's like, am I, is my boob sweating? Yes. Can I put on the professional tone in an instant? Also, yes. Also, yes. And I love that about us, especially like women in business, right? Like we are so, so used to just like bringing it together and showing up in the way that people expect us to, I guess, but full transparency. My boobs are sweating. My t-shirt is tucked under. I am a little bit nervous to talk to you because I've been following you for so long and have learned so much from you. And I feel this good kind of pressure to hopefully capture it in an interview where other people can like soak up all of your socially conscious tools to better show up in the digital space, whether they're creators or consumers. I couldn't have put it better. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Thanks, oh. Mary. <laughs> I'm wondering, so you you call yourself a digital storyteller. And I'm wondering what that looks like to you. What do you do? What inspired you to become a storyteller and the journey that led up to it? Ooh. Well, I think I've always been a storyteller, period. The mediums have changed. How I show up and share them has changed. But the essence of me wanting to find ways to tell stories through, especially like multimedia practices, have always, always been there. It's funny because I kind of look back at milestones in my life. And I don't think milestones is the right word, but like, moments, key moments in my life. 
And there are these points where I named all the different ways that I end up telling stories now. So, you know, like I was six and I told my mom I wanted to be an author and I wanted to write. And I was 13 and I told my dad I was going to be a photographer. And I was 17 and I was like, I'm going into film. And these are all of the three main ways now that I get to do that and I get to show up and tell stories. So I've always kind of known that I wanted to do all these things. And I've also always kind of been multi-passionate, which is sometimes and most times a blessings, but, you know, it can be seen as something that's harder to navigate to be a multi-hyphenate or a multi-creative person. I know there was this piece where you were writing and then the visual aspect and photography, and then there was film. So at 17, what was that transition to film or how did they all come together? Like, do you have creative parents or family members, teachers? Like what, what really led to that? Like shaking my head when you said, do I have creative parents? Actually, that's not true. My mom is very creative, but I do have parents who are entrepreneurs. So my dad has his own business. And I think what actually brought it all together was in university. I don't know quite how to fully explain how much I really didn't believe that I could be a person who got a salary, let alone like a salary beyond minimum wage. Like in my head growing up, just knowing how much, especially in my early childhood, like how much my family made and like that my parents were immigrants and we were in a lower income household for like the first 10 years of my life, especially when I like was thinking about university and jobs and post-secondary education, like in my head, all you needed and all I needed was like maybe a salary of $35,000 a year, enough to pay for a little apartment. And I would do what I would love. And I would be really happy with that because my mom did a really good job of raising us with the idea that you can find happiness in all of these things and money doesn't buy happiness. And it's about where your head's at and, and, you know, like the experiences that you have. And she did a really wonderful job of raising us in that way. When I say us, I mean me and my sister. So I never thought that I would have anything that had a salary or like anything like that. So when I got to university and when I was exploring all of these things, I really just dove into the things I really loved. And I also, when I was 19, I I had a migraine induced stroke when I was working and living away in the Yukon. And I came back and I was kind of like, I don't know what I'm waiting for to like start doing the things I really want to do. I think there's like this huge narrative of like, waiting until you're a certain age or waiting until you finish something to then go on and do the next. So I came back and when I was 20, I started my own business. So by the time I ended the third year of university, I at the time had enough clients to pay for what my living expenses were. That being said, I lived like a student. So my living expenses were not like... (laughs) an adult living expenses. I say that with air quotes, but it was just like enough. I feel like I didn't know enough about how the real world worked and money and all of those things to hold me back from just being like, this is what I'm going to do because this makes sense because I I don't see myself in in a corporate world. Yeah. I think there are like two big pieces, at least that I see. And the first 
is how your mom helped you find joy and like not necessarily having a lot of money. And that allowed you to like pursue the arts because you're like, all right, 35K, I'm good to go. I can do that whether I work at a restaurant or I'm like a quote unquote starving artist. And this other piece, and you kind of like skimmed over it and my jaw was like half open. Um, You had a stroke? (laughs) Yeah, I skim over it because it's, I did. And it was really impactful and it changed a lot in my perspective. And at the same time, I am hyper aware of the fact that I live in a body that is deemed able in society now versus like when I had it, I was not. So the last side of my body was paralyzed and it took a while for me to be able to move my body in the way that it does now. So. I think I like never really process it though. Like real talk, like that's the stuff that we unpack in therapy now. Like Mm -hmm. processing the stuff that at 19, I just didn't have the bandwidth, the resources, the ability to actually take it in and, and understand like what that meant. But it did give way and give space for the decision that I made and the decisions that came after of just do the thing. And there's always going to be something that tells you that you have to wait a little bit longer. And it's different for different people. And for me, that was the reminder of like, whether you finish your degree or not, like you want to be doing this. So go ahead and get started. And it just like started this series of events that kind of led to me being able to operate the business that I have now. Wow. So you started that at 20 and was that business like video creating? So at the time, it was actually photography, so freelance photography. It, it's still the same business name, so it's still like the Double J Collective, now Inc., but it was the Double J Collective. And at the time, it was a combination of freelance journalism, because I was really like working to be like a multimedia journalist. It was uh, spoken word poetry for hire, because I used to do spoken word poetry, and it was photography. Hence, collective. Yes, it was. It was just like here is a collective of all the things Jenny has to offer to the world. You remind me a little bit of. Do you follow Ariel Astoria? Yes, she's also a spoken word poet and a model and like a music creator and a video maker and like multi passionate, multi hyphenate, and that inspires me so much. Yeah. So that's where it started. And then it, again, series of events that just expanded and grew. And in 2018 was the first year I entered like full-time entrepreneurship. And when 2019 rolled around, like 2018, I think I made like 13,000 in top line revenue, which is, like I said, peanuts. But I didn't know that was peanuts because I was like... (laughs) I can live with little, like we make this work. And then by the time 2019 rolled around, my business made uh, well over a hundred thousand in revenue. So I was able to, for the first time, have like access to capital, investing into equipment, like just being able to do all the things to actually create a company and create something sustainable and start thinking about the things that like I think about now as I like enter late twenties coming into my thirties. 
Wow. How did it feel when you like did those taxes or did your year-end review and just saw the big jump in income? What were the feelings? So when I did my taxes in the year-end review, it was actually in 2020 when COVID hit. So that was a very mixed feelings moment because Mm. at a time where I would have been celebrating and celebrating continued growth, I was also just really sad because, you know, that had like a huge impact. But I think throughout the year, as I was hitting these milestones that I just like never expected for someone like me. And again, like I say like me, like in quotes, like someone with the identities that I have, the experiences that I have, it's just like I had never seen a photographer or videographer that number one looked like me, let alone that was like making enough money to be like, you can live doing this, let alone to like then grow enough to have a team. Like these are things that continue to surprise me, which sucks. Like it sucks to be surprised by the fact that you exist and what you're doing you've never seen before because it's not necessarily revolutionary. But at every moment, I think like surprise would be inaccurate description. Yeah. It also is a letdown when you don't really have role models or people to celebrate with because I don't know about you, but like some people that I've had in my circle, like I wouldn't dare to tell them how much I made because that would raise suspicions and red flag or like they would, you know, start saying certain things or like also the story of like women not being able to talk about money or career advancements. And the whole stereotype I actually had when me and my boyfriend first started dating, he actually said something to me along the lines of like, not everyone has parents to help us out. And I just like lost my shit because I didn't. Mm -hmm. And I think he at the time, not knowing me very well, just couldn't swallow the fact that I was 21 with a business and made enough money to fund a lot of the things we did together and all of that stuff. And I think it's surprising for you and for a lot of people who look at you, which it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. And and it's hard, right? Like there's like so many layers. There's like the layers of being women in this space for the two of us and like what it means to talk about money. There's like the layers of even just like financial literacy and knowing like, sure, you make this much, but like, what does it actually look like for you and in your day to day? Like I thought the be all end all was like that year. And when I made a hundred thousand in revenue and then I was like, yeah, but that's only revenue. Like But when you actually do all of this and you realize like you actually need three years of a solid paycheck to be able to buy a house if you're at least like anywhere close to Toronto, (laughs) like where I am. And I don't know, like all these layers that come with it afterwards that no one's really talking about when you see the metrics that are superficial, right? Which is a lot of what people are seeing when it comes to whatever is online. Yeah, 100%. The costs of running your business and of existing and just even like all the, you know, 24-7 work around the clock and everything, it ends up that most entrepreneurs are working for like $1 an hour. But that's a separate story. You said, I've never seen people in this space who look like me. Since Mm -hmm. we're on a podcast and most people don't see you, how do you look and how do you culturally identify? And what are some of those identities that you've been exploring with us so bravely publicly. That's 
the part that I've really, really loved following because I've personally been on a very similar journey as well. So yeah, tell us more about that. Okay. So for everyone listening, I am medium brown skin toned South Asian woman, got long black hair if it wasn't dyed, but it is dyed. So it's brown with apparently balayage that's very grown out at this point. And I wear on the day-to-day potu, which is the Tamil word for what is more commonly known as bindi, which is like the red mark or dot or in more modern days, a design that's in between the middle of your forehead for folks who may be Tamil or Hindu or both or one or the other. And I culturally identify with being from the island of Sri Lanka. So I am half Tamil, half Sinhalese, which if you know the context of Sri Lanka, that's actually both cultures from both sides of civil war. I identify stronger with my Tamil side though, because although my dad is Sinhalese, my mom is really the person who raised us with our culture and our roots. So she really raised me as a Tamil woman in a Tamil household and my partner is also Tamil. So I have both sides, but I really strongly have been exploring what it means to connect specifically with the Tamil side of my identity, as well as what it means to be a South Asian person living in North America. Mm -hmm. Have you always felt connected to your culture or is this like a recent pursuit or not even connected, but like embraced it, I guess? I have absolutely not. I have been the person who was so happy to be called things like a coconut, which is like a racial slur, FYI. Like the idea of being, you know, brown on the outside, white on the inside. My sister, actually, my older sister, she's so connected to our culture. And so it's very interesting, like watching the two of us. If you know my sister or ever met my sister, you would see that you would see just how different we are, but I think like watching her in the world and how the, like the world treated her because of how connected she was to her culture made me want to connect with it less. Like I saw her get made fun of for being like fresh off the boat and things like that. Or I saw her get made fun of for playing Tamil music when back in the day, like your iPod would go off or whatever. And she would have like those kind of tracks. And so it just made me internalize so much of it. And it's really funny, by the time I got to university, and I started actually unpacking that and wanting to connect, my dad was like, you hated this. Like you hated this your whole life. What are you talking about? And there was like a definite period also of grieving of like grieving how much I like forcibly erased to no one else's fault, but like the society that we live in, like it wasn't my parents fault. It wasn't my fault. It was just, I took a look around and I realized, well, if you want to fit in, you have to be a certain kind of palatable. So I'm really good at being palatable. And what changed as you got to university? When I got to university, I, number one, I went to university in a really white space. So like growing up, I went to school in Mississauga, which is in the greater Toronto area. And it's very South Asian. It's not very Tamil. So I still felt like I didn't really fit in. Like I was, you know, like I was a different kind of brown to everyone else because most of the South Asian population around the school that I went to were from India or Punjabi or Pakistani versus from the island of Sri Lanka, which has a very unique like culture identity history. 
so I had at least like grown up around it. And then I went to a university that was very white and I was very apparently like a brown girl on campus. And then I went and I worked and lived in places that were, again, what most of like small towns in places look like, which is not very culturally diverse. And I just, at some point, like between watching a lot of people around me be connected to their culture and also recognizing that no matter how palatable I sounded, no matter how white I thought I could be on the inside. And I, you know, say that with air quotes, everyone would always see me for the skin that I live in and the body that I live in. And I have to either spend my whole life hating it or get comfortable with it. And spending my whole life hating it is exhausting and useless and so not culturally rich. It makes no one happy at the end of the day. So I think like through those four years, I had some really wonderful friends who also were kind of unpacking the same thing. I really got to witness like Black culture on campus and the Black student associations also were such an incredible embodiment of being in their power. And I think like that to me also was huge just to see another community of folks who really knew what it meant to just take ownership of where they come from and what their roots are and what is also reality. Yeah, I think it's a combination of like growing up and kind of having this realization like I'm going to stick out either way. (laughs) So I might as well stick out in my way as opposed to like trying to placate other people's opinions and like trying to control those you just realize that the only thing I can control is the way I want to show up and I'm going to show up like this. Like I'm 80% there. The other 20% is about accepting it. I love that we're talking about this because it's a, it's a different kind of body acceptance. Mm-hmm. But I think even the white people that are listening or people that are in a more like socially acceptable body or people who have recently like gained weight or struggle with a disability or somehow feel like they don't fit in there's a lot of people that can really relate with the fact that at a certain point you come to the realization that this is how I am this is who I am and the difference between me being discombobulated about it and never feeling like I'm fitting in and the contrary is pure self-acceptance yes a thousand percent yes and it looks different for different people in different bodies And it's not necessarily even about our bodies as much as we think it is about the way society perceives our bodies, including for folks who are racialized, what that looks like. And for me, like that was unpacking a lot of internalized beliefs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So aside from telling stories through video, You're also big on advocacy and activism, which I'm sure people picked up on. And I'm wondering if that's always been a part of your platform, especially on social media and publicly with the work with your business. How did you come to bridge the gap between like digital storytelling and essentially the services that you offer and doing it in a socially conscious way and sharing that journey so that like other people can learn from it? It 
really and truly started with me just saying things that I was like, does everyone not get this? Like, is this actually not something everyone thinks about? Like, do we live in the same world? Do we not? Are we like, really? Because when it started, I think like that year in like 2019, I was like full on going into working on my business, which was photography and videography that I had fully kind of entered. And I was going to a lot of these events where it was for quote unquote women in business. And I say quote unquote women in business because it was for a very privileged version of what that looks like. And there was so little like actual diverse experiences on stages, let alone in those rooms. And I was just having conversations with people and just realizing that the world of activists that I knew and that I loved and that had really helped me and supported me and are my friends through like unpacking a lot of the ish that I unpacked is very different than the world of online influencers, business owners, slash like women in business kind of world and content creators. So it all started off with me just saying things that were on my mind. Uh, my Instagram account actually was supposed to be my Finsta. If you actually scroll all the way down and I keep it that way so you can see it, they're just puns. All my captions are bad mountain puns. Like that's what it was <laughs> for a solid minute. And then it slowly started shifting into just like asking these questions that I was like, are we all here? Or are we not all here? Like who else is here? And clearly something resonated. And I think the more it resonated, the more I keep on realizing the digital world that we live in now is just a reflection of the systems of oppression that exist in the systems and governments and society that we live in. It's just an extension of that. So the stuff that we talk about that we want to fix in like the society that we live in, it also has to match and mirror that change and that language and that way of showing up in our digital spaces too because we spend so much time there we live there so it started out as being like is everyone where are we are we are we good uh so they being like oh okay we're not all good and we're definitely not all on the same page so let me just remind and share the perspectives that i have and and hopefully it helps shift a little bit of that culture what are some of those perspectives that you shared that seem to really land with people or, I don't know, generate the most conversation around? I think it's actually two part. One big piece is, I think, for a lot of other folks who are South Asian or come from racialized or ethnic backgrounds who are trying to figure out the parts of themselves that they kind of erased and are working through it. And I think just like, being able to really share and normalize, like, it's okay. Don't blame yourself if you did that. And it's okay to grieve and it's okay to find a way to relearn it. I think that piece is actually more common than I ever thought it, it could be. And I, I, like, I think you said it too, like you're exploring what it means for you. And so much of us spent so long erasing parts of ourselves because we thought we had to, because that was the society that we lived in and kind of live in today, but it's changing. And I think there's an undeniable fact that it's changing. And then the other piece, I think, just comes from that background in thinking a little bit more critically about media 
And when we think about media and when we think about media practices from photography to videography, like Kodak film never created film for black and brown skin tones until chocolate and furniture advertisers needed to be able to market the color brown for their advertising purposes. And in the same way that film was never made for black and brown skin tones, Instagram filters and the way photographers and videographers even edit black and brown skin tones aren't thinking about those kind of things necessarily on the day to day. And so when you start to pick up on that and when you start to realize like what narratives are actually being shared and how are we actually reinforcing stuff that's really harmful, that's where like that second piece kicks in. People don't realize that centering yourself doesn't just mean talking about yourself. It also means who is at the center of an image when you decide you want to amplify someone who is literally allowed to take up the most space in video campaigns and ads and content and in your website banner photo, like all of these layers of the different pieces of when we show up online, what are we actually doing? So those are the two pieces I think that come up often. You did a post recently that I reshared because I loved so much because I was feeling it and thinking it and I had no idea if I was onto anything. I mean, you just put words to it. Talk to us about digital cultural appropriation. Yeah, the idea that we literally take on, number one, when you're making reels and TikToks, you take on someone else's voice if you are lip syncing or using their audio. and the platforms exist for how they exist and they are entertaining and can be wonderful. But then when you realize that the voice or voices that you are taking on are also ones that have been caricaturized and made fun of or belong to a person whose identity and group is marginalized in the society that we live in. It's a part of digital cultural appropriation because cultural appropriation is putting something on that doesn't belong to you and then taking it off and doing so when it conveniences you for the clout, doing it because you want to, doing it because you think you can without any of the ramifications or understanding or appreciation of all the context that comes with it. So when you take on and lip sync to a voice of someone who is Black and using, rightfully so, African-American vernacular English, or take on and use the voice of someone who has an accent because they're from India or Sri Lanka or somewhere in South Asia, and then you just take it off when you're done with it because you had your entertaining reel that you got all the likes for and did all the things. It's just, again, that added layer of perpetuating what already exists in the society that we live in. Mm -hmm. I think the explanation that was the game changer for me personally was when we talk about power structures and the way that this showed up, again, was a conversation with my boyfriend and I where I had said something about like, basically like, It was a joke about like him using his looks to, or like being my trophy husband, something along those lines, Mm -hmm. right? And he asked a very, a very real question is like, okay, well, how come you can say trophy husband and I can't say trophy wife? And in one sentence, 
the way that I was able to communicate it, and I was really proud of myself because I, I learned it for myself, is that when it comes to like, for example, a man is has more like power in society than a woman, or like a white person has more power in most Western societies. The way that I explain it is that power dynamic and which way is it going? And obviously, you know, we're close. And if he were to call me his trophy wife, there's certain contexts where, you know, certain ways that you say something that also matter. But in general, especially when speaking to strangers or like I, what drives me crazy is when like older men try to like joke around teasingly with their female server, like at a restaurant. And again, the easiest way to explain it is that in that point, you're eating at that restaurant, you are in a position of power. So all these like ha-has that you say are just a joke, well, they're not just a joke because of that power dynamic. So anyways, for me, I feel like it just puts a period at the end of that sentence, but now I'm taking away from the impact of it. But it's basically like analyzing, okay, like which way is the power dynamic going? And when it comes to like sounds on reels or TikTok, I'm thinking, okay, well, would this person whose voiceover this is, would they be taken seriously in society? And would they also get the same recognition and whatever it is that you get from using their voice, would they get the exact same when they are sharing it themselves? Exactly. And again, everything has its own context. Like if a creator is making sounds to be like, go use my sounds, here's a trending audio. But how many people are actually looking up every single creator and giving them due credit and seeing if that's what their intention is also? Yeah. One thing that you do so well though, and this is that piece that I was telling you before we started recording, is that you add a little something and you think about these things that most people don't think about. And yet they're just so simple and so conscientious and go so long. Like I was just scrolling on your Instagram and you use that very popular sound that was like, when you look in the mirror, there you are, you know, and you just like said, song is from Moana. Yeah. Right. Like so simple, but like goes so far to recognize that this is actually like important. This is like an important piece of music in an important film. You know what I mean? I think those little things go such a long way. Well, just to like bring it full circle and tie it into the idea of storytelling, what's missing on social media is the context of the whole story. But you have to do it in these small, tiny, little bite-sized pieces that without that whole context, you are doing someone somewhere a disservice. So in these little bite-sized snippets that people get to experience of whatever it is that you do and whatever it is that you're creating and the little story that you're telling in the grand scheme of it all, that context as much as possible, I think is really important. And I think like that's what it comes down to in all of it. I just want to be able to live in a world that respects and honors all of the stories that come with it. And people as individuals, people in their creativity, like the things that people have spent a lot of time making, doing, creating, working on, amplifying, educating, like there are so many hours and hours and hours of labor that is behind even a conversation like this that folks have been doing for us to even be in the space to have these conversations. And as much as we can, to create spaces that hold space for that, acknowledge that, just kind about it. I think that's really 
what it comes down to. And the bright side of being a very palatable person, because I grew up trying to be as palatable as possible, is that for whatever reason, I figured out a way to get people to pay attention and to listen. And if I can at least use that for getting people to take note and getting them to listen, I don't want to tone police myself. And I try really hard to be conscious of when I am because it's a habit I'm trying to unlearn. But as much as I can in the ways that I can just keep doing it, that's, that's all I want. And it is very much appreciated. Before we wrap up, I did want to touch on this one piece that I think will be valuable for our listeners. We've been talking about this digital space as like a whole and not just digital, but like what we could do a little bit better as people and stories that we can recognize or get curious about and acknowledge. And I want to bring it back to like this individual aspect. What I think you do so well is boundaries in the digital space. For example, your email signature is so impressive. (laughs) Do you mind if I read a part of it? You can read it. Absolutely. (laughs) You write at the end of every email, it says, P.S. Please note that this inbox is monitored Mondays through Thursdays from 11 to 4 with a response time of two to three business days. If you're looking for a timely response, please email my team here. And then you write, while other updates may be made on my personal Instagram slash infeed, in order to stay organized and maintain response rates, DMs regarding email correspondence may not receive an immediate response. (laughs) And I just love that so much because we all know the person who's like, sends an email and then they DM and they're like, I just sent you an email. And I'm like, bro, (laughs) like, (laughs) (laughs) honestly, that's not a problem. Like, since I've been doing that... That has not been a problem anymore, and it's beautiful. Yeah, and I just love things like that. And one of my really good friends, he actually owns a retreat center in Costa Rica, and we always talk about like how to create boundaries with our clients, especially because we do very intimate work, you know. And this is one way to set that expectation. And then there's a two paragraph land acknowledgement for the sake of not butchering the names of the indigenous tribes. I'm wondering if I could have your permission to put this land acknowledgement in the show notes. Yes, absolutely. Okay, that would be so helpful. And I love how you ended with, you know, how it's important to recognize the layers and circumstances that led to this signing and that this land is home to many diverse First Nations. And you end with, while land acknowledgements allow us to engage in ongoing reconciliation by reflecting on the physical space we are on as a company, our work now takes place in a combination of physical and virtual spaces to continue to prioritize and center reconciliation. We will always encourage our team, clients, and community to take time to learn about the lands they're currently on. You can do so here. And then you have a link where you can learn about where you are. I'm wondering why you have a land acknowledgement in your email signature. And do you recommend we all do that? I just think it's an embodiment of everything that I believe in. And everything that I believe in is truly trying to figure out how to say this um, in a concise. I have the land acknowledgement there. Because I think as someone who is a settler, because I am a children of immigrants and I'm not from this land, that is one piece of the part that I can do to 
always keep myself accountable and also continue to keep my community accountable to at the very least, at bare minimum, have an understanding of the land that we are on. So Mm -hmm. because of that, I think it's really important to have. And I think it's one piece in the part of just naming the truth of the society and systems that we live in. It's just the same as like putting in your pronouns in your email signatures, just how can we normalize these conversations? Talking about the land that we live on shouldn't just be for when there is a very traumatic day for the Indigenous community. It should be always. And you can't talk about anything decolonizing or land or travel or ethical or conscious without also including the Indigenous community. So how can I, as someone who claims to talk about you know, ethical, inclusive content and spaces, not include that. I think that's, at the very least, it would be hypocritical. I think it's important. I think if not in your email signature, at the very least, knowing exactly what land you are on, again, it's like bare minimum. Action step. Find out what land you're on. We do land acknowledgements. Well, the past couple of retreats I've done in Costa Rica, because that's so important. It's like if I'm hosting a mm-hmm. retreat there. I got to at least acknowledge the tribes and the significance of us being there, you know, how it was not all pretty (laughs) for us to come to this moment. I'm wondering what other boundaries do you have for your digital space? Something that's been like a game changer for you. And do you have any advice for people who want to build a better relationship with their social media and technology in general and the way we? interact with each other online for anyone who uses social media for work which is you me content creators business owners if you have the capacity if you have the means and ability the best thing i did for myself this past year is get myself a separate phone one phone is my personal phone and has no work apps which also includes instagram because instagram is work for me and one that's work and the work phone gets touched 2 hours into my morning and doesn't get touched once I hit 6 or 7 p.m. and I'm done for the evening. And the personal phone is my, I'm FaceTiming with my friends or I'm going to do a meditation or whatever I need for that. So I think that was really huge. And then I think the other piece too, for anyone trying to figure out those boundaries for themselves as they tell their story online, is really to share from the, there's a quote, it's share from the I want to say scab, not the wound, but that sounds so strange. But you share the, the scar. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> it's like scab is still healing. I don't know if we're sharing from the scab. Um, share what from a the, visual. Yeah. <laughs> share from the share from the scar, not the wound. But really just like embody the idea that if you're still in the story, it's okay to take time and hold yourself in it as you work through it before you share. So I have some like strict rules around when I'm experiencing something like when am I ready to share and how am I taking care of myself when I do? I love that. Yeah, especially in the space I'm in, it's it's kind of like demanding that everything is a learning experience, everything be shared right away and that whole like in real time connection. But yeah, that's how we sacrifice ourselves. And then you don't even get like the time and space for yourself to even just give yourself a minute sometimes, right? Like the thing I remind myself is when people see certain parts of you, they feel like they have access. And even though you haven't given them access necessarily, they might feel like they have access. And that 
just even having space and compassion for that and saying like, well, I didn't give you access. And I know you might feel that way. And this is what I have to do to take care of myself right now before I can give a little bit more of me. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, I'm just feeling like I'm like commodifying yeah. every little struggle, you know, and that's not a good feeling. Jenny, thank you so much for your time today. And in attempts to respect it, I'm going to let you go. Do you have any final asks or any call to actions for our listeners? And where can we work with you, follow you on the internet and soak up all your wisdom? Of course. Well, you can find me on Instagram. I'm there at Just Ask Jenny. And send me a message if you're listening to this podcast because I really love to know who tunes in. And I think the final call to action is to just exist a little bit, one, with your story, and two, if you're in the digital space and how you show up in those spaces and if it's a reflection of the values that you have. Because sometimes we have values, but not all the spaces are reflections yet of the values that we want to embody. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing yourself with us today. I love this interview. I can't wait for people to listen to it. And like you said, start thinking a little bit more critically about the way we're showing up online. And yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you so much, Mary. It was such a pleasure. Bye, everyone. One last thing before we farewell, if you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, we would greatly appreciate if you could leave a short review on iTunes slash Apple podcasts. Your feedback helps the show so, so much. I absolutely love hearing from you. And as somebody whose love language is words of affirmation, your words mean the world to me. Just go to the Apple Podcasts app and scroll all the way down until you see the review section. And from there, you can just tap the star thing and leave your own review. Thank you so much for supporting me and this greater message of self-love for all. Also, feel free to send this episode to a friend and spread the gift of self-love. And speaking of the gift of self-love, make sure you pick up my book, which is available in stores and online worldwide. Just head to maryscupoftea.com slash book, and you'll find all the links to give yourself the gift of self-love. I love you all so, so much, and I will talk to you next time. Mwah.